Let's pray together. Father, we pause to glory in the appearing of your grace to us. Lord, we praise you for your goodness and for your loving kindness that you have shown to us. And now, Lord, we pray that you will give us grace through your word and by your spirit and train us to be godly people, godly people who speak of your grace, godly people who live out your grace, and godly people who show your grace by our works. We pray that you will build us up, that you'll encourage us, that you'll fill us with joy in your salvation, and make our hope in your return eager and confident. We pray that you'll do this for your glory, by the name of Jesus. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, and you know the lyrics, but now I see. The man who wrote this hymn, Amazing Grace, the, we might say the hymn of all hymns, was named John Newton. Newton's salvation story is familiar to many of us. Before Jesus saved him, he was something of a mean-spirited mariner who gave his life to uh, shipping slaves back and forth across the Atlantic. He was a slave runner. And then one day, a vicious storm on the Atlantic cropped up, and they were sailing through the midst of this storm, and uh, a new fear of death cropped up in him. And as he was fearing the fragility of his life, he recalled a proverb that his mother had shared with him when he was a young child. His mother would regularly share the gospel with him and implore him to fear the Lord. And it's this proverb that says, you've ignored me, so I will laugh at your calamity. And soon after this experience, Newton put his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Newton eventually quit the slave trade, and he ended up giving his life as a minister of the gospel. And he became one of these Christians who was so zealous for the Lord that he hosted nightly Bible studies in his home night after night. And every night they would write a new hymn for that Bible study, out of which came this hymn of all hymns, Amazing Grace. Newton was a captor of slaves who became a captive of grace and became so captivated by grace that he wrote this beautiful hymn we sing so often. And his life illustrates for us the main point of our text today. It's that those who have tasted the sweet sound of grace will become good zealots of that grace. And that leads us to a question for all of us. Does the transforming, the training, the saving grace of God show itself in your life through zealous good works? Does grace show up in good works in your life? Open with me, if you haven't already, to Titus chapter 2. You see, for some in the Cretan church, their zeal for God was what you might say half-hearted. And there is this division over doctrine, and it was a division that led to worldliness breeding in their midst. If you look over at Titus 1, verse 16, it says that they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. And you see, by denying doctrine, the grace that saves, they came to no longer prize gracious living. And so Paul, the apostle, he wrote this letter to their leader, a man named Titus. And this letter was meant to be a prescription to this grave error. And Titus was to teach the church that the grace that saves us 
is also the grace that trains us to live godly lives. If you look up at Titus chapter 2 in the preceding text above verse 11, you'll see that it's filled with practical instructions to men and women and young people. And then here when we get to our text, Titus 2 verses 11 to 14, Paul is going to base that godly living in the doctrine of God's grace. He's going to base our godly living in the salvation that God has brought. So let's look at verse 11, which contains the first point for us today. Grace brings salvation for us. And the text says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, you might summarize verse 11 as something like, salvation has arrived. The salvation that was initiated by God is now offered to all people. And it's helpful for us to ask, what is the cause of this salvation? Well, it's the marvelous, the infinite, the matchless grace of God. And this, this beautiful word grace means getting what we do not deserve. We have earned what? Condemnation. But God gives what we cannot earn and what we do not or could ever deserve. Salvation freely by grace. We don't deserve this. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And despite our deserved doom and judgment and condemnation, God has brought salvation. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Look down at our text Titus 2 verse 13. We'll get here. It says he gave himself for us. In other words, the grace of God that appeared is salvation at the cross of Jesus. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And notice what it says. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the full revelation. He's the full appearing. He's the full disclosure of the grace of God. You might say that he, he brings the grace of God out of the shadows. When Jesus appeared, salvation appeared. Now, the text says that when Jesus came and displayed the grace of God, that it was for all men. And we need to be careful here because Titus is not saying that the grace was universally given freely to all men. Instead, what the text is trying to communicate to us here is that the, the grace was universally offered, not universally given. God is offering grace to all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you want, you can turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. It explains to us why grace is universally offered. It says that grace, or that God in his grace desires all people to be saved. And to what? And to come to a knowledge of the truth. So that leads to another all-important question, perhaps the most important question you can ask in your life. What must you do to receive this grace? Well, look down at Titus chapter 2, verse 13 again, where it says that he gave himself for us, meaning Jesus gave himself for our sins that condemn us. In other words, in the Bible, it says that three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over our sins. The way to answer this question, the way to respond to this grace is by repenting of your sins, saying no to your sinful lifestyle and saying yes to what pleases the Lord and then placing your faith and your whole trust in the gracious Lord Jesus. This is a grace from Jesus that will bring you pardon. It will forgive you, but it's also a grace that will cleanse you from all your sin. It's a grace that's freely bestowed on all who believe. Will you this moment 
his grace receive. Grace brings salvation. Then in verse 12, Paul teaches us that grace forms godliness in us. Grace forms godliness in us. Says that grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God does more than save. It also, the text tells us, trains us. We want to ask the question this morning, how does grace train us? Well, let's remember that it is Jesus who is the one who is full of grace and truth. So one way to answer this question is, well, it's Jesus who trains us. And as such, his death is the basis of our moral living. And his death is the basis of our education. And in fact, his life is the example that we follow. So when grace trains us, we're trained by looking to and depending on the one who is grace incarnate. And this is all God's initiative. Grace first comes to us from God, and then now the text tells us grace continues with us, training us by the Spirit of God. I think this exposes the lie of moralism. We cannot make ourselves moral people, and we can never please God. No, God must first save us, and then he must train us and empower us, and by the Spirit and through his word, work godliness into us. Notice this first verb. It tells us that gracious Jesus, he begins with corrective discipline in our lives. It says he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The verb renounce means something like just say no. And notice there's kind of a parallel statement down in verse 14. Notice it says that Jesus gave himself for, there's a first purpose clause there, to redeem us from all lawlessness, or as the NASB says, as Denny read, every lawless deed. So notice that renounce and redeem, renounce in verse 12, redeem in verse 14, are these parallel negative ideas. Here's the point. He, Jesus, saved us from the negative, ungodliness, and now on that basis, he trains us to say no. This is how grace trains us. I uh, recently experienced some drama at the dentist. I've been to the dentist uh, 10 times in the past year. I can tell you that story later. Uh, but recently, they needed to make a mold of my teeth, and so they, they took this large half circle metal cylinder thing and some of y'all have had this done to you you know what I'm talking about and they filled it with this dense goo and they put it in my mouth and then as if they thought it was funny they just walked away left me to suffer this torture so I'm sitting there very uncomfortable I'm literally sweating I'm struggling to breathe and it starts to get the better of me and so I just start kind of murmuring as best as I can with all this goo in my mouth no 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 and I start waving my hands really erratically and before they can make it back over to me very embarrassingly I just start gagging violently <laughs> in a similar manner as believers we are to have a natural and a violent reflex of no to the idea of doing what displeases the Lord. Now, Paul provides two categories which we are to say no to. He says we say no to ungodliness and we say no to worldly passions. This first word, ungodliness, describes a posture towards God that totally disregards him and cares nothing for what God thinks. This is describing the agnostic who refuses to acknowledge God and could care less about God's ways. This text reminds us we must say no to this kind of thinking. And instead, we want to live all our lives quorum deo, as the Latin says, in the presence of God. Then there's this second category we're to say no to. We're to say no to worldly passions. Culture's mantra is what? Fill up your life with stuff and then fulfill every whim and fulfill every desire that you have. 
Scripture warns us that such desire like this, that it is foolish, that it is harmful, that it will corrupt us, and even worse, that these type of worldly passions wage war against our souls. And so these two negative terms compel us to step back and to examine our lives. Are we too filled with the busyness of life to give ourselves to the business of knowing and serving God? What do your life goals reveal about your priorities? What about your calendar? What about your financial statements? What does your screen time report or your browser history reveal about what you're passionate about? These terms also compel us to examine what I might call the little things in our lives. We're all tempted to think that the little bits of center of our lives don't really matter. The little outburst of anger, the little bit of anxiety, the little moments of laziness, the little glance of lust. We need to be warned that, as the author Jerry Bridges puts it, the one who despises little things will fall little by little. Let's continue in verse 12. Paul now moves from the negative to the positive, and he commands us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To live is the positive result of our training in grace. Look down at verse 14, where again we see a positive parallel statement that puts the basis of our moral living in the work of Christ. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, but also in the positive, notice, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. By grace and by faith, Jesus works in us the purity of life that he requires of us. So let's ask the question again. How does grace train us? How does grace train us? Well, it trains us when we remember what Jesus' death has accomplished for us. Jesus died to save us from hell, but he also died to save us from hellish living. Now, notice this verb, live. It's in the present tense, and so it speaks of this idea of having a lifestyle of persistent effort. We are to habitually say yes to what pleases the Lord. People who please the Lord are self-controlled, and they're upright, and they're godly. And notice how these terms speak to different spheres in our lives. Self-control speaks to the sphere of ourself and how we apply grace to ourselves. And then upright speaks to the horizontal sphere out into the world and how we relate to the world. And then finally, this term godly then speaks to the vertical and how we relate to God himself. And in this letter, Paul is, uh, uh, this word self-control, it's something of a theme in this letter. If you just glance your eyes over chapter 2, you'll see, uh, well, in chapter 1, actually, he commands elders to be self-controlled. And then in chapter 2, he commands older men to be self-controlled. And then he implies that older women are to be reverent in behavior. That means having self-controlled behavior. And then he commands young women to be self-controlled. And then he says, likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. This is the essence of Christian virtue. And this word self-control means something like to have a sound mind. And so here's the logic. If we have a well-ordered mind, then we're also going to have a well-ordered life. So here's a call from grace to put our souls into order, to control our emotions, to manage our thoughts, to guard our tongues, and to consider every action. Then we have the second term, the word upright, which... I remind you, speaks to our relationship to the world. And if verse 12 reminds us, we want to pursue all these attributes in the present age. 
So here's a subtle reminder from Paul that we live in an age where evil and injustice proliferates. It's all around us and it's celebrated. What does it mean to live an upright life? I know of a family in this church who is so devoted to the word that they have read and discussed together over 40 different books of the Bible. If you want to be an upright person, be mastered by the word of God. And I would say especially master the law and the Proverbs. Okay? Because the principles in the law and the principles in the Proverbs will train us to do what? To be upright people, to love our neighbor as we ought to do. Michael Horton put it this way, how we look to the law. The law and the Proverbs, they, they're like a sailboat. Where it's like we're in a sailboat and they, they kind of show us where we're at on the map. They show us where we're going. But what they can't do is only what grace does. Put wind in our sails. So we need grace to train us to be upright people. Let God's word direct your paths and all those under your care. This third term, the word godly, refers to our relationship to God. Without knowing and worshiping God who is good, we will find it impossible to actually do any good in our lives. If we want to be trained by grace, we have to give ourselves to both the spiritual disciplines and the corporate disciplines. Don't be content to just read the Bible. Be a person who meditates on the word, who memorizes the word, who sings the word, who prays the word. And make sure you do this every single day and make sure you use pause to do it throughout every day. The Bible is our life. We cannot be godly people and excel in God's world until we are mastered by God's word. And then let's talk about what we might call the corporate disciplines, the disciplines here in the body of Christ at Kenwood. Don't be content to just show up here at church. I want to encourage you to lean in, take notes, meditate on the lyrics that we're singing, stay and engage in one another in fellowship, and serve others in the same way that grace has come to serve you. This is the means that your king has ordained for you to grow in grace and in godliness. So grace brings salvation for us. Grace forms godliness in us. And now look at verse 13 where Paul teaches us that grace guarantees hope for us. Grace guarantees hope for us. Verse 13 says that we are those who are waiting for our blessed Hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, notice in the text that there seems to be some parallel statements happening here. And I think the verb waiting parallels this verb in verse 12, training. Training and waiting go together. And uh, I looked up John Piper, you know, he has those things where he uh, arcs the text, and I watch him arc in the text, and he put it this way, how training and waiting work together. He says, the essence of how God trains us is by producing in us a joyful and confident hope. Let me say that again, because I want you to get it, because it's a crux for this passage. The essence of how God trains us is by producing in us a joyful and confident hope. It is this confident hope that empowers us to grow in grace. It's a hope that empowers us to say no to immoral license and to say yes to moral restraint. And you'll notice also the repetition of the word appear here. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, and now we're waiting for the appearance of Jesus. And, and here's how I think it's working in the text. The, the first and the second appearings of Jesus. Jesus came, right, early in A.D. He came, lived a perfect life, died on a Roman cross, but he's coming again. And so there's this idea that his two comings sandwich our lives, right? He's before and after us, okay? So there's this sandwiching even in the text between verse 11 and 13. What's in the middle? 12, to live self-controlled lives in the present age. 
you might call this a chiasm. And this chiasm here is a reminder for us to view reality through the lens of redemption. We have to look back to what Jesus has done, and we have to look forward to what he will do. And we have to constantly, in this present evil age, orient ourselves by the gospel and by grace to God's reality and to what God says reality is. As Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, we have to constantly, every day, habitually look to Jesus, who is the past, the founder, and future, the perfecter of our faith. So who's appearing? Are we waiting? We are waiting for Jesus. I want you to notice that it's only Jesus talked about here. Notice that there's one article, the appearing. Okay? And then also notice there's one possessive pronoun, our great God and Savior. Okay? So verse 12 is calling Jesus both Savior and great God. Now let that set in a minute. This, this is a, a marvel-producing statement of Jesus' divinity. This is very high Christology. It's very clear. Jesus is God, and he is Savior. And so it is he who is the source of our confident hope, this marvel-producing hope that motivates us, that trains us as we wait to live godly lives. And it's this hope that empowers us and trains us to be self-controlled people. Think about the content of our hope. In heaven, after Jesus comes, he will give us renewed bodies. And we will have righteous desires in heaven. We'll also live in a renewed earth where we will spend eternity being committed to and devoted to the doing of righteous works. And if this is our destiny, renewed bodies, renewed minds, righteous works, how much more by grace ought we to work now to renew our minds, to retrain our desires, to, so to speak, prepare them for heaven, and to practice in the present works of redemption. We wait for the Lord by working for the Lord. Fanny Crosby she exemplified such godly waiting and working for the Lord. She wrote many of our beloved hymns that we sing today, such as, To God Be the Glory and Rescue the Perishing. Many of you may not know, Fanny lost her sight due to a doctor's malpractice when she was just a little infant. And yet, despite this, she refused bitterness, and she saw her blindness as a work of good providence in her life that allowed herself to be devoted to writing hymns. It allowed her to be devoted to good works. She said, when I remember how I have been so blessed, and she means by grace, she said, how can I repine? Another time, someone lamented to her, I, I just wish, I'm so sorrowful that you cannot experience and see the beauty of this world. And you know what she told them? She said, don't pity me, because the first face that I'm going to see is the face of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Fanny found joy in Jesus' past appearing, but she also looked forward to the greater joy of Jesus' second appearing when he would perfect and complete her salvation. She taught us that his promise is enough for every single step that we take just as we sang this morning. In the same way, grace is training us and it's transforming us today to make us fit and prepared for heaven. Just as our present salvation should bring us great joy, we should also look to our coming heavenly redemption with, as Peter says, an exceeding joy because we will be made like him and we will be with him forever. And it's this joy that should motivate us to be godly people. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, he makes this fascinating point. He makes the point that if we do not love what is holy and good and righteous here, there's no way that we're going to love heaven. 
Think about it. What's in heaven? Everything that's good, everything that's holy, everything that's righteous, and it's filled with good and holy and righteous people doing good and holy and righteous works. And if we don't love those things in the present, we will not love those things in the future. The idea of a sinful man or a sinful woman loving heaven is ludicrous. Godly people will love heaven. Godly people will learn to love heaven and to be fitted for heaven now by saying yes to godliness and saying no to ungodliness. Jesus saves us, as I said earlier, from hellish living, but he's also training us in the present for heavenly living. Grace brings salvation for us. Grace forms godliness in us. Grace guarantees hope for us. And then in verse 14, Paul teaches us that grace transforms the world through us. Grace transforms the world through us. Look down at verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession." Who are what? Zealous for good works. So grace trains us to love what pleases the Lord, but it also trains us to love what is good. And so that means that grace, when it appears, it not only comes through Jesus, grace also comes through us. Don't miss this point. Grace comes into the world through you. This is... How grace trains. And how does grace make us zealous for good works? How does it train us? Well, verse 14 answers, he gave himself for us. As mentioned earlier, this is the basis of the grace that brings salvation. Jesus, he took our place and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he bore the full extent of God's wrath against sin on that cross. And the more we let the reality set in that the infinitely worthy Son of God gave himself for us, the more and more we are going to be eager and joyful to give ourselves in service to him and to others. Now the next two verbs in verse 14 further explain what Christ's death accomplished. So notice there's this negative statement again. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. Sin held us captive. We were slaves to our selfish desires and we were trapped in this prison of our own condemnation that we could not escape. But Jesus redeemed us. This word means he he purchased us. He, He bought us. And not only did he buy us, He also brought us from the darkness of that prison into the light of salvation and grace. And now, because of his redemption, we now belong to him. We were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to a new master, to a good master who we joyfully love to serve, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then verse 14 adds the positive. He gave himself not only to redeem us, but also to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Jesus redeems us from the penalty of sin, and he redeems us from the power of sin, but now we learn that he also will cleanse us from the presence of sin in our lives. Now this is an ongoing work that he has begun on us that's going to be completed at his second appearing, but nonetheless he is purifying us. Hebrews 9 verse 14 puts it perfectly. Listen to what it says. It says that Jesus purified our conscience from dead works. Okay, so there's the negative again. Jesus purified our conscience from dead works, and now here comes the positive, to serve the living God. Before Jesus, what did our works do? They just sowed death. But now that grace has appeared to us, it now trains us and it purifies us so that our works will do what? They will reap life. And as a result of this wonderful, marvelous grace, this redemption, 
we become his own possession. This is the same word that Yahweh used of Israel in Exodus 19 when he called them there at Mount Sinai, my treasured possession. And it's as his treasured possession that we serve him. And we need to note that Christ did not take us and save us and purify us and then just put us in a jewelry cabinet and hide us away. No, instead, Jesus saved us and redeemed us and purified us so that he might show us off to a watching world. He redeemed us so that we might be zealous for good works. Now, the grammar here, this phrase, zealous for good works, is interesting. Uh, It's not a verb. It's actually a noun. The text literally says a zealot for good works. So good works are then not just uh, an attribute in our lives and not a part of our lives. Here the text says they're our very God-given title and our very God-given identity. Zechariah says that when God sees us in heaven, we'll have written on our foreheads, holy to the Lord. Perhaps we'll have a second thing written on our foreheads. If we did, I think it would be this phrase, zealot of good works. Both identities, holy to the Lord, and then zealot of good works are based wholly on God's grace. This is all of God's doing, all of God's initiative. God is the one who must give it. And so good works are then the purpose of grace appearing. And good works are one of the primary purposes, you might say the primary purpose, of our lives. Think of what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 16. What does he say? Let your, shi- let your light shine before others. And then there's a result clause. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how does the gospel train us? How does the gospel drive good works? Well, here it is. The grace of God fuels joy. And it's joy in having received the grace of God and joy at the grace of God that we will receive that then empowers and motivates our obedience. And it's an obedience we do with joy. Now, don't miss this. Here, Paul is joining for us doctrine and practical Christian living. Right? You cannot separate these. The, the false teachers uh, that Titus was dealing with in Crete, they were separating it. They were saying doctrine and practice, they're, they're different things. But here Paul says, no, they belong together. Think about this. It's our, it's our wonder and it's our joy at having received the grace of God that then causes this deep abiding affection and joy for God to rise up in our hearts. And that affection and that joy that grace gives is then to overflow to a joyful, zealous, good works. So we look back and wonder at the joy and cost of redemption, but we also look forward with great joy, and we wait with great joy by working in the present. We are to love and do good to others. And scripture tells us that we're to love doing good for others with abundance and to do it with abounding joy, to do it with great energy and with great initiative. And I think it even implies with creativity. We're to be committed to dot and I's and cross and T's and our good works are to be excellent because they mirror the grace of God. They tell of the grace of God. And when you think about the logic of how grace motivates us for joyful, zealous, good works, well, this might help us understand why the second commandment, the second great commandment, is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, but because God has so loved you, then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's step back and let's ask a question that maybe many of us have never asked. What are good works? What are good works? Well, here's a definition I got from a guy named Matt Perman. He wrote this excellent book on productivity for Christians uh, called What's Best Next. I'd highly commend it to you. And he defines good works this way. Anything that does good and is done in faith. 
So what is a good work? It is anything that does good and is done in faith. Right? We're tempted to think good works are limited to grand acts of redemption and grand acts of sacrifice. They, they can be that. Those things ought to be in our lives. But good works are anything done in faith. Now, think about this. Do you know what that means? This means that the activity of our everyday lives are filled with good works that bring glory to the Lord. Every single day we are to wake up and go about our lives and we're constantly to be those who are asking one question. Who is my neighbor and how can I serve them? Who is my neighbor and how can I show them with my good works the grace that I have received? And then we do as much good as we possibly can for them. One of the most notable examples of a zealot for good works is William Wilberforce. I love William Wilberforce. I love talking about him. If you have not read a biography of this man, I'd highly encourage you to do it. It will change your life. You see, Wilberforce, before Jesus saved him, he was uh, kind of a, a wealthy socialite, and he was known to be grumpy and lazy and he idle, and he really just lived to play card games with his friends. But then grace appeared to him, and, and God saved him, and it totally transformed him into this good works zealot. He became one of those people who, you know, at dinner, he would just break into songs of praise to the Lord. Or he would just walk into a room singing. His joy and salvation was overflowing. And his joy was such that it overflowed to an abundance of good works. It's, it is said that he regularly came up with so many schemes in his head to do good for others that he only had half the time for what he had in his head. He spent, as many of you know, his whole life working to abolish the slave trade, a lifelong work that uh, he was successful in along with his followers. But he also committed his life to what's known as the Reformation of Manners. Uh, England was a vile place during his life, and so he and his followers, they spent their lives working to relieve the poor, to help those who were the very dregs of society get back up on their feet, to care for orphans, and much, much more. And Wilberforce single-handedly uh, started a movement in England that transformed British society. His commitment to this idea of reforming uh, manners actually led to what we know as the Victorian era, an era where virtue became fashionable. And do you know how he did it? Well, he led with his joyful example. He started these good works and others follow, but scholars actually argue that it was his book that he wrote, A Practical View of Christianity, that was the spark that led to this Victorian Reformation. And here's what's fascinating about this book. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read pieces of it. It's not practical at all. It's a book on doctrine. He spends pages and pages talking about grace and salvation. And so here's what seems to happen. Those around him read his book and heard him talk in the ways he talked in this book. And as they were warmed by the doctrines of grace they found in themselves a growing warm piety that flowed over to good works. And they, just as Wilberforce, not because of Wilberforce, but because of grace, became zealots of good works. So we likewise need to let the doctrine of grace make us those who are not just warm, but hot zealots of good works. If works are anything that does good, and done in faith, then what are some practical examples of good works in our life? Well, I've got a list for us. A, good works flow from godly character. Good works flow from godly character. Character is what God prioritizes and he prizes in you. The book of Titus, for example, is filled with practical exhortations to have godly character. 
the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we have to be Christian before we act like Christians. We have to be Christian before we act like Christians. So if you lack character, you lack the basic equipment you ought to have to love your neighbor. If you're someone here who's training for ministry, this is why character is so essential. If you don't have character, you're not going to have the equipment you need to shepherd God's people. B, good works begin in the home. Mothers, every diaper you change, every shirt that you fold, and every meal that you cook in faith is a good work. Fathers, pray for your family out loud and read the word to them. This is a good work. Singles, I want to encourage you to serve your roommates in abundance in every way that you can and use your home and use your free time to show hospitality to the saints. Children, what are your good works? Well, I want to encourage you to serve your siblings. And you know what else is a good work? You're not going to like what I'm going to say. Obey your parents. This brings great glory to God. But I want to encourage you to obey your parents because grace has appeared. See, good works should flourish right here in the church. Good works should flourish in the church. We often tell you you can change the world when we're putting out calls for volunteers. And that is not just some byline we use at elders. We actually mean it. We believe that by serving others here at the church, you are going to transform the world and show God's grace. This church is a a great servant-hearted church. So I just want to encourage you all to excel all the more. To not grow weary in doing good. So show hospitality. Make meals and make meal after meal after meal. Disciple and pray for and with others. Give encouragement liberally. Be glad to take care of babies. Keep passing out pizza. Keep cleaning up. Keep setting up. And give your time and your energy to the business of the church. These are some of the most important and fruitful good works that God has given us. D, good works should transform your employment. Good works should transform your employment. You should be the best employee your boss has ever had. You should be eager to take load off of your co-laborers and take on as much load as you can so that you're useful and productive and you're fruitful for your employer. And here's the thing. If you do your job in faith and you seek to do good in your job, then in that secular vocation, you are serving the Lord. Finally, E, good works for certain. They continue to the needy and to the unbelieving. We must always preach the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and to our neighborhood. We must proclaim the gospel to our relatives and to our co-workers. We must go to the nations. Some of you, God is calling you to the good work to get up and to go to the nations and to plant a church and to establish the grace of God and cause it to appear in a place it has never appeared. And as we go, we should make sure that we adorn the gospel of God our Savior with good works, with works of charity that serve those who are truly needy. We should also be those who are on the forefront of society, building businesses and building schools and building communities that will ingrain redemption into society and promote godly flourishing. These are the good works we are to give ourselves to. Think about this. Grace is not just a disinfectant. It doesn't just cleanse us from sin. It doesn't just cause us to say No. Grace also causes us to live and to say yes to good works. We're not dour people. Yes, we are to be sober-minded and we're to be dignified, but we're also to be abundantly joyful people. Grace, you might say, is more than a disinfectant. It's also a rocket propellant in our lives. It trains us to live, to wait, and to prepare for heaven. 
And we do this in the present by being zealots for good works. Here's how uh, the great pastor uh, John Wesley put it. Do all the good you can. By all the means you can. In all the ways you can. In all the places you can. At all the times you can. To all the people you can. As long as you ever can. So rejoice in the grace that has come to you. And rejoice over the grace that is still to come. This is the key. And then let God's grace propel you to live a godly life. And to show God's grace by your works. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will increase our joy in your salvation. Past, present, and future. We pray that your grace will sanctify us in the truth and that it will propel our good works. We pray that you will loose our tongues to proclaim the gospel freely and boldly. We pray that you'll free our schedules to serve others. We pray that you'll enliven our homes with joy in the mundane but life-giving task of our lives. And we ask that you'll do this through the Spirit and by your grace. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?